thank you, church. It is um, hard to put into words um, the gratitude that I feel for this church and the immense privilege that it is to share God's word with you. I'm going to fill in a little bit about what Pastor Rick was saying and just kind of what brought me to this place. Um, about 20 years ago, I'd say roughly 20 years ago, um, I was going to a church that the teaching was very much like the Judaizers that you guys have been learning about in the book of Galatians. So um, Jesus is great, but it's Jesus plus something else that's necessary to get you into a right standing with God. So I remember as a young man, growing up in this church, I'd be, be at times confused and I'd be listening to, to sermons and they have these vivid illustrations about how one gets right with God. And, and one of these was, you know, uh, a picture, salvation as cleaning a window. And you need the Windex, which is the blood of Christ. And then you need the, the paper towels, which is your works. And both need to work hand in hand. And that way you're going to get right with God. Or another famous one was a picture Salvation as making it from one end of the lake to the other. And you need the boat, and that's going to be Jesus. He'll be your boat. And then you need the oars of your good works, and that way you'll make it across. So I remember growing up in this. I remember kind of trying to process this. I was a pretty good kid. I didn't do the, you know, the big sins, and I thought I was okay. But I remember going to bed at night uh, somewhat terrified because I had this sneaking suspicion that my part wasn't going to be good enough. And then during that time, by God's providence and by his grace, he brought me to this place, to this congregation. Uh, I started attending CVC sporadically and started hearing things that I've never heard before. Things that were being confirmed in my heart when I was feeling, hey, maybe I'm not good enough. It was confirmed, hey, guess what? You're not good enough. Uh, you're not. And, and, and it was ultimately a freeing experience because I also heard what is going to give us a right standing with God and it's Christ and his righteousness and his atoning work and that alone. And I believed upon Jesus. And it was this incredible experience. And 10 years later, uh, came back and, and CVC uh, went to college, came back. CVC helped us to plant a church. And so now 20 years down the line, this is a huge privilege for me because I can come and stand at the pulpit at the place where I've heard the gospel explained. So my hope is to continue the legacy of this church and to preach well to you all the gospel of Jesus Christ. So would you bow your heads with me? We'll pray together, and then we'll get into the book of Galatians. Our God and our Father, we pray over these next several moments. We come because we know the promise that your, world will not, that your word will not return void. And so we come to hear from you. We woke up this morning, we got ready. We came with expectations. And Father, we pray that you speak, that you use your word to convict, that you use your word to encourage. Father, that you would edify your church, that you would call your enemies to yourself and you would be honored. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. After my conversion story, the process of sanctification, just like for everyone, began. I had many things that God needed to change in my life. I still do. Uh, but one of the big things early on was a pugnacious spirit. And the way uh, to define a pugnacious spirit is a person that likes to argue, likes to fight, likes to quarrel. I'm sure some of you are these people. Some of you know these people, right? And I was one of these young men. So I, I love to get into theological discussions, not for the edification of anybody, but just to kind of prove some points and, and to have this theological tussle. And as a matter of fact, it didn't want to say theology. I branched out in all sorts of things I didn't know about, 
right? I, I, I was debating people about the food they eat, finances. I didn't know a thing about finances, but for some reason I had opinions about finances, Actually, all, all kinds of things. I was just that kind, of, that kind of young man, and God had to do a work in my life. And as a matter of fact, I remember that being this young man and getting into these theological debates, and, and I thought I was just doing the right thing. I, I, I actually went to the book of Galatians. It was, it was my book. It was, it was Paul being rough with his people uh, in Galatia, and he calls them fools several times. Huh, maybe I could use that in my next debate, right? And I was thinking, oh, this is a righteous thing that I'm doing in, in, in confronting all these people. But the mistake was that I just didn't read far enough. I didn't read with the right lens. If I would have continued reading, I would have realized the kind of heart that Paul had when he was approaching these people. And for the Apostle Paul, this wasn't about winning an argument. And for the Apostle Paul, this was, a, this was a much more serious issue. If you have your Bibles, you can turn them to Galatians chapter 4. We'll be studying verses 8 through 20. And in this section, what we're going to see is Paul's heart revealed. He's pleading with the Galatians to hold to the truth. He wants them to trust Christ alone for their salvation. And when he's pleading, this emotional language is constantly being used. He's being very vulnerable. Watch some of these phrases. He says, how could you? I am afraid. He says, I entreat you. He asks, what happened? He wonders if they became the enemy. He, angu- uh, he wonders if he has become the enemy. Excuse me. He says he's in anguish. He says he's perplexed. You can feel the pain and the suffering and the hurt. It's personal for Paul. As we'll find out today, this anguish in gospel ministry is going to be personal for anyone that engages. And so we're not just talking about uh, the leaders in churches and, and the full-time ministers, but we're talking about everybody that gives their life to Christ, that wants to push one another as a community to know Jesus and wants to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth. That ministry, that engaging in ministry is a heart-wrenching anguish. And the question that we're going to be asking is, why is it so hard? Right? Why does ministry have to be so hard in this text? Well, I answer it in three ways. All right? Our text will answer it in three ways. These are going to be the three big ideas of this morning's sermon. And I'll give them to you right away just so it's easier to follow along with me. So why is gospel ministry so hard? What makes it so hard? Well, number one, it's going to be the love for the message. Number two, we'll see the love for the people. And number three, we're going to see the love for the Savior. So love for the message, love for the people, and love for the Savior. Let's begin this first idea, love for the message. Verse 8, Paul continues and he says, formerly when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. Again, the theologically rich passage, the whole book of Galatians, theologically rich book, right? Paul begins by putting up this contrast between verse 8 and verse 9. Verse 8, formally... Uh, Back in the day, you were people that were enslaved. You did not know God. But now, verse 9, God has come to know you. You have come to know God, he says. says, To be more precise, God has come to know you. And and you are changed, right? This This is a summary statement of what the gospel is. We are dead in our sins and trespasses. God comes and makes us alive through faith in Christ, through the work, atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the gospel. Now, when he continues, he asks them a question that I think, and I don't think it's overstated, that I think is probably one of the most 
remarkable statements in the entire book of Galatians because he says something very risque. Something that would have took these enemies of the cross, these enemies of, of the gospel, really aback. Notice what he says at the end of verse uh, 9, second section of verse 9. He asks, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? So follow his argument. He's saying you were once pagans. Right? You were once dead. You were once enslaved. Now remember, if you come to this church, you probably remember what, uh, what kind of context the Galatians came from. Uh, they came from a very pagan con- context. They worshiped all sorts of gods and goddesses. They brought incense to them. They even worshiped Caesar himself, right? So, so it was a very pagan context. Says, you were enslaved to that kind of stuff. And he says, and now God has made you alive, but now you're returning, right? He says, you're, you're, you're going back. And so we're left kind of questioning, well, Paul, what do you mean? Are the Galatians actually going back to their pagan temples and offering incense and and worshiping all these gods? And that's not the case at all. He means something different because he continues. And watch verse 10. He says how they are going back to their paganism. Verse 10, you observe days and months and seasons and years. You're observing the Old Testament liturgical calendar. That's what Paul says. And this would have been like a slap in the face, the Judaizers. The Judaizers were this group of people that were coming to Galatia from Jerusalem and they were saying things like, hey, Jesus is great. It's all good. We love Jesus too, but you need to do something else. But you need to get circumcised, but you, you, you need to follow the law. And Paul says, listen guys, this, this, is, this, is, this is a big deal. He says, you were once pagans, God has come to know you, and now by following the Old Testament law again, you're reverting to paganism. You see, he equates following Old Testament law for salvation to paganism itself. As a matter of fact, I I think a point could be even stronger made, because there are several commentators, one in particular, his name is Tom Schreiner, he says, listen, the language that's used here is very particular. If you notice in verse 9, he says, you're returning to weak and elementary principles. That that language connotes an idea of demonic Right, the idea of, of, of a demonic presence. And so he's saying, listen, back in the day, you were pagans. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the idea of worshiping false gods as having a demonic influence. And I think he picks up on this here and he says, listen, listen you, you, you came to know God, but you, now you're following the Old Testament law? I said, this is an issue of life and death. This isn't just you know, an argument that Paul wants to win here to score some theological points. You guys are going from life to death. You guys are turning from the life-giving source of the gospel to something that is fundamentally demonic, to something that, that, that pushes away from Christ. You once were there. You came out. Why are you returning to this Old Testament law-abiding stuff? Right? It's Christ and him alone. Do you, see, do you see how passionate he is about his message? I mean, this must have been like, The Judaizers were furious about this. You're calling our teaching demonic? You're calling our teaching as leading people astray? Yes, that's what it is. Paul says it's Christ and it's Christ alone. And the anguish, I think, is is, is founded upon this. His heart is in so much anguish in the ministry because he loves the message. He loves the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thinking about this and wrestling with this this whole entire week. And thinking about how we oftentimes tend to diminish that love for the message. I think primarily it's done in one of two ways. Either we kind of devalue the message itself or we elevate things up to the level of the message. All right, so here's what I mean. We devalue the message. I, I, I sometimes hear well-intentioned people say things like, you know, I, 
I really hate that there's so much division in the church. That's good. That's right on. There shouldn't be that much division in the church. Right? I, I think we should all just get along better. Amen. Right? That's what Jesus taught. That, the, that, that one of the marks of discipleship is, is love for one another. But then they'll start clarifying what they mean and they'll say things like, you know, there's, there's a friend of mine that, that believes that you need to follow sacraments in order to be saved. You need to get baptized in order to be saved. And my church doesn't believe that. But after all, I mean, we're all Christians, right? We all love Jesus, right? And I want to say, no, right? No, 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 you're not getting it, right? Paul is saying that there's a theology that's damning, that's demonic, and there's a theology that's life-giving. If a theology says that you can be made right with God by anything, other than the righteousness of Jesus Christ, other than the atoning work of Christ, then it it is at its core damning. It is at its core demonic. The only way that people are made right with God is by the sufficient work of Jesus Christ on the cross. That is the gospel. That is the life-giving news that Paul is after. Does that make sense, friends? That's why we don't devalue, we elevate the gospel. And we don't devalue, we don't push it down by these false pretenses of unity. We strive for unity, but the gospel stands first and foremost. Then the other side of it, right, is this idea that we sometimes elevate other things. It's the polar opposite, but actually has the same effect. That we elevate other things to the importance of the gospel. So I'll give it to you in my context. I have a lot of strange friends, right? Um, Just, just weird people that are into all sorts of things. And I appreciate that about them, right? So I have friends that really love politics, right? And so when I see them during the week, they'll be asking me about, what do you think of Brett Kavanaugh? What do you think of, you know, the new Supreme Court justice nominee? What do you think of the midterm elections? And we'll talk, and I enjoy talking about politics. And then I have other friends that are really into health stuff, right? So whenever they catch me and they corner me, they'll talk to me about GMOs. Right, there'll be a full, full lecture on GMOs and, and, and different things like that. And that's fine. I, I don't know much about it, but I, I can listen. I can interact. There's others that love causes. Right? They love standing up for this kind of cause. There's this Facebook thing, and you need to join. It's fine. We, we, we can listen. We can interact. And again, all those things in of themselves are not bad. They're not wrong. They're fine. A lot of them are good, but they're not the gospel. Those things don't define us. You see... What separates humanity at a core level isn't whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, whether you're a vegan or a meat eater, right? Whether you follow one kind of diet or another, what separates us is whether we believe in the gospel of Lord Jesus Christ or we didn't, because that's what's going to separate us for eternity. So so when we start playing around, excuse me, when we start playing around with these things and we start elevating these other ideas, these other even good ideas to the level of where the gospel is, it begins to devalue the gospel itself because if everything is important, then really nothing is important. And so what I started doing with my friends, this might be kind of like a, a harsh move with some of them, but when they come up to me, I start telling them about these, these ideas and I'll listen and then I'll ask them a question. Hey, Fred, how many times did you share this political view or your view on food or your view of whatever uh, with somebody this week? And they'll say, oh, I had so many conversations. And then I'll ask him, and how many times did you share the gospel this week? Oh, that's not fair. Oh, why not? Well, why not? What is the most important? What is the most relevant? What is the thing that's going to separate us ultimately? Is it politics? Is it food? Is it rituals? It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we don't elevate anything, anything up to its level. All right? So Paul feels anguish because he loves the gospel, because he loves the message. The second idea is Paul's anguish comes from his love for people. Verse 12, brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, 
for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a body ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? So clearly, clearly in this section, Paul gets personal. He pleads with them to become like him, meaning someone that's not under the law. He gives them motivation for it. Why? Because I became like you. I, 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 I gave up things for the sake of you, the Galatians here in the gospel. I gave up on a lot of rituals and things that I enjoyed. I gave up on, on, on abstaining maybe from pork and, and all these kinds of things. Why? Because I wanted to contextualize the gospel. I wanted to make sure the gospel was relevant for you. And I did these things. I become like me. You're not under this Old Testament law. You're not under this system anymore. It's Jesus plus nothing. Become like me, he's saying. And then, and then he's pleading with them. He's reminding them of their history, of, of what it was like at first. And he says, you did me no wrong, just the opposite. Despite a body ailment, you did not scorn or despise me. Now, there's a couple things that come out from there. On one level, this body ailment thing is a field day for commentators, right? Everyone's trying to figure out what is the body ailment. And all of them start the same way. We don't know, but here are our guesses, right? And there are all sorts of things about what it is. Possibly Paul's, all the persecution, all the stonings, all the beatings that he received, he's come to Galatia to recuperate. Maybe Para, probably not, because he used the word body ailment. That's more of like a, a, a term used for diseases. And so some people say, you know, it might be epilepsy or malaria, because that's where traditionally people in that time went to get treatment for those kind of conditions is in uh, the region of Galatia. Possibly. Some say, hey, you know what? It was probably an eye disease. Some kind of pus was coming out of his eye. He has some kind of deformity. And that's why later on, we just read the verse. He says, if you could have gouged out your own eyes and gave them to me, right? He says that. So possibly again, we don't know for sure. All this is speculation, but I think what's even more interesting than the speculation of what this could be is just the very fact that he says, you were kind to me. You did not despise me, even though I had a physical condition. Because at first, when I read that, I asked the question, I mean, what kind of people are these? I mean, who are these Galatians that they despise someone for a physical condition, for an abnormality? I mean, who are these people? But when you start reading into kind of just the history and the historical context of the, of the day, it starts making sense. You see, back in that day, people really connected a physical appearance and how well you're doing physically to how much you were being blessed. So there was truly a belief that if you had some kind of physical deformity, if you had some kind of disease that was contagious, if you had anything like, like some, something about you that was off, that means God was cursing you. And so you, you understand how that could get out of hand, right? Because today we understand how communicable diseases work. If you hang around a person that has some kind of disease and if you share liquids or share any kind of things, you, you, you might catch that, right? That, that, that disease. They didn't understand that back then. That was, hey, I was friends with you and God punishing you and now he's punishing me because I'm friends with you. And so what started happening is they really started despising these people. They started walking across the street whenever they saw a person with a physical abnormality. Uh, as a matter of fact, they started spitting on people. That was a sign that I don't agree with you, that I, I, I'm cursing you like the gods cursed you. And actually, Paul references that because in verse 14, when he says, you did not scorn me, the literal translation is, you didn't spit on me. <laughs> so Paul's thanking them. Hey, thank you guys for not spitting on me when I came to preach the gospel to you. That, 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 that's what he's saying in this verse. 
It's this, 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 this radical thing of, of what happens and, and because, because what they're expecting to see is this, this handsome, tall man coming, physically well-built, to preach to them the gospel, and they get Paul, right? They get Paul, a guy who has pus coming out of his eyes, who's beaten up, who's bruised. He just looks not okay, but he preaches the gospel. And God takes the message and he works. And hearts are converted, and the Galatians repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and they fall in love with Paul. Everybody else is crossing the street when he's coming down the road, uh, and the Galatian roads, they're huddled up around him. They want to hear more and more about this Jesus that Paul is proclaiming to them. I mean, they just had such a loving relationship. Paul says, you guys didn't despise me. You guys didn't scorn me. You guys loved me in this time. He's reminding them of their beginnings. I mean, it's this reciprocal love relationship between this apostle and these people in the Galatian churches. And I think, again, it points to this idea that we're talking about this morning and this idea of and why is gospel ministry so hard? Why is there so much anguish? Well, one, because Paul really loves the message and is being trampled on. And one, he just genuinely loves these people. He loves these people. And it's breaking his heart to see them cast away what he finds it was most, 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 biggest treasure, most pleasurable. They're casting it aside. This is love. And friends, I don't think I'm going out on a limb to say I think the church is oftentimes robbed today of this kind of love. I do. I think the church today is the kind of love that Paul has for this church. We're robbed of it because we fall into the trap of buying into a culturally defined parameters of what love is supposed to be like. We start buying into what our culture, what our world says love is supposed to look like and not what the Bible says love is supposed to look like. Let me give you two different definitions that are complete polar opposites. One definition, the culture says, what is love supposed to look like? Well, love's supposed to be that you don't make, uh, you don't get into my business. You just leave me alone. Right? We have a cordial, friendly relationship. That's about it. Love in this world's eyes looks like you don't make me uncomfortable because if you do make me uncomfortable, that's not real love. Friends, that, that, that's an issue right? when we get to, get to the book of Galatians because if that's love, then, then Paul wouldn't have ever wrote this book because he gets up into people's business really close. Right? He doesn't leave them alone. He makes them feel all sor- sorts of uncomfortable. Right? He, just, he just gets in their business. The better, the biblical definition of love is I'm going to do you good even if it makes you uncomfortable. I'm going to do you well. I'm going to do you good. I'm going to love you. I'm going to care for you. I'm going to make sure that you have good, even if it makes me or you uncomfortable. That's the biblical definition of love. This is really easy to demonstrate the difference between the two. We can think of hundreds probably of examples. Uh, One that popped into my mind, mostly because... Right now we're dealing with um, an infant in the home, an infant transitioning to being a toddler. He was born in September. He's our fourth child. My wife Olga and I had our fourth kid. He's a baby boy. His name is Ivan, and he's pretty calm. He's pretty calm overall. He could sit. He's in his crawling stage, but he's not all over the place. He doesn't go off the stairs or anything like that. He's pretty calm with one exception. He has a strange obsession with power strips, Right? Just, I don't, I don't know what it is about the boy. You, you could give him anything. You could give him like a piece of paper and he'll just sit there and play with it for hours. But when he sees a power strip, it's like a magnet. He goes right to it. And so Olga and I are obviously worried about this. And so we pick him up whenever he goes to the power strip and we say no and we put him down. And he gets really, really angry, right? And he doesn't know how to communicate and he just yells at us about why aren't you letting me go to the power strip? And we say, you know what? You'll get over it. You're not going to the power strip, right? Now, any rational human being sitting in this room will say, well, that makes sense. Right? When you apply the definitions of love to this context, you'd have to be insane, insane to apply a cultural definition of love to this context. 
right? If, if I said to my child, what makes you more comfortable, buddy, right? <laughs> going, going to that power strip? Is that, is that, is that what, I don't want to make you uncomfortable, right? I, I don't want to get in your business, right? You'd have to be insane as a parent. No, no, what I do is, you know what? I don't care about your comfort right now. I'm going to pick you up and I'm going to place you on the other side of the room because I love you, because I care for you, because I want what's best for you. That's the biblical definition of love. Friends, that makes sense in that kind of context, but it's really hard to start applying it to one another. It makes sense when you apply it to a child, but it becomes a completely different level because we really, really don't like to feel uncomfortable. And I'm right there with you guys. I don't. I mean, I had a pugnacious spirit. God has worked on that. I'm not, I'm not big into confrontation as I used to be. I understand this. And yet, this is, this is, this, this is, this is love for the Apostle Paul. He's going after these people. He knows that he can't leave them in that situation. They're giving up what's most precious for, for, for trash, for idolatry. And he's going to go after them. And friends, you know what I think on a very practical level, just to kind of bring this down to, from, from a thousand feet, just to, just to this the ground, I, I think this plays out in church membership. That might surprise some of you. What do you mean church membership? I mean, I think in a lot of evangelical circles uh, today, church membership is something that's frowned upon. It's almost like a four-letter word. I kind of like, you know, hopping from church to church. Friends, let let me give you a word uh, of admonishment here. If you want to experience this kind of love, then you get plugged into a church. If you're one of those people that hops around from church to church whenever you're feeling a little more, uh, a little uncomfortable, you're not going to experience what Paul has here for the Galatians. Because the moment you feel uncomfortable, you set up these walls and you hit the road down the street to another church. And Paul says, like, you want to experience this kind of thing? You want to experience the kind of love that Paul has to the Galatians? You commit. Whatever process they have here at CVC, you commit. You make sure that you pour yourself out for this people and these people pour themselves out to you. You're held accountable to these people. You make sure that if you go off the handle, the church could discipline you because that's a grace in of itself. And you let people speak in. You tear down the walls and you let the church speak into your lives. You give people permission to say, hey, be like Paul to me, right? Because I tend to go astray like the Galatians go astray. I need someone to kick my butt every once in a while. I need someone to to tell me to wake up every once in a while. And that's what covenant church membership is, friends. I think on a very practical level, it's something I'd like us to consider. So you have this anguish of gospel ministry. And it's coming out, right, pretty clearly in the text. It's coming out through his love for the message. It's coming out through his love for these people. And finally, and we'll close on this, it's coming out through his love for the Savior. Verse 17 says, they, meaning the Judaizers, again, if you're new, if this is the first time you're here, uh, this church has talked about Judaizers. I've I've listened to the message. But just to kind of uh, do a recap, Judaizers are... Uh, the teachers from Jerusalem that are coming to uh, add some things to the gospel, okay? Add some things to the gospel. And so these people, he says, they make much of you. They make much of you, but for no good purpose, Paul says. They want to shut you out that you make make much of them. And he says, it is always good to be made much of for a good purpose. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now and change my tone, for I am perplexed by you. So Paul sets up another contrast in these verses. He explains that the Judaizers, this, this group that's trying to add things to the gospel, is making much of them, right? A good colloquial translation would be they're tickling your ears. They're telling you what you want to hear, right? And, and, and you're buying into it, but they're not doing it for a good reason. They're doing it so later on you could say how good they are, 
Right? They're, they're, they're feeding your egos so that later on you could say, oh, these Judaizers, they're great. They're wonderful teachers. And Paul says, listen, it's not bad to encourage. It's not bad to be made much of as long as it's for a good reason. Now, what is Paul's reason? Look at verse 19. I'm in anguish until Christ is formed in you. That's the, that's the distinguish. That's the contrast. The Judaizers are, are, are tickling their ears. They're telling them what they want to hear. They're telling them good words because they want them to make much of the Judaizers. Paul is telling him good words because he wants them to make much of Christ. See, that's the distinction. Paul's entire life up to his trip of Damascus, to Damascus, was all about himself. How he could get that position, how he could take that next step, how he could be made much of. On the road to Damascus, something drastically changes. He meets Jesus and his life is transformed. From then on, his life is about something different. It's about making much of Christ. Everything that Paul experienced, the shipwrecks, the beatings, the stonings, all of it comes back down to this point. He doesn't want to come back to the Galatians and the Galatians tell him, man, Paul, you're a spiritual guy. Man, Paul, you are like Jesus. He, he wants them to say Christ is formed in us because of your ministry. That's what he wants. That, that, that's Paul's goal. He wants Christ to be magnified. That's why, that's why there's so much anguish. Because the Galatian heresy, this teaching that the Judaizers bring in, that it's, word, that it's gospel, that it's Jesus plus works, he's saying, listen, Christ isn't formed in you through this. This is damning teaching. He loves the Savior. I think the passage hit me on a very particular note this year. <clears throat> so as you guys heard, 10 years ago, we planted a small church in Parma, Ohio called Mercy Hill Chapel. Uh, CVC has been instrumental in coaching us and helping us start and, and mentoring and discipling, all these kind of things. It's been, it's been a wonderful relationship. Um, and this year, every year seemingly, we have something new. Because as a church, you start experiencing new things. You guys have been around for a while. You've experienced much of this for uh, different experiences. For us, it was one of our first. Right? And so this year, we had a young man come to us, come to the elders, and... He sat down with us and he said, I have something to talk about. And so we sat down and talked to him about it and he says, I'm done. And we said, okay, what does that mean? Are you, are you going to a different church? And he said, no, 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 listen, I'm, I'm done with this whole thing. I'm giving up on this Jesus thing. I don't buy into it anymore. I'm going to find my pleasure, my joy, my satisfaction, and all these other things. But I'm done with this. And I tell you what, it was like gut-wrenching experience sitting there listening to this. It truly was. 20 years ago, I know what I would have said. 20 years ago, that day when I was just beginning to be sanctified, I would have said, all right, let's have an argument. <laughs> Let me prove to you. Let me score some theological points. Let me show you how wrong you are. There was nothing inside of me that wanted to have a theological argument with him. I wanted to plead with this young man. What are you doing? Are you kidding me? You're giving up that which is most precious, Christ himself? For fleeting pleasure? Are you kidding me? Wake up! Are you kidding me? This is, this is what you're giving up Christ for? I wanted to plead with him. This is Paul's heart in this passage. He's pleading with these people. And he loves these people because they're giving up what is most precious to him, his Savior. They're going back to the demonic rituals and paganism that they came from. And for him, it's a big deal, brothers and sisters. Church, for him, it's a big deal. And he has anguish because his savior 
isn't being honored the way he should? Why is gospel ministry so hard? Because we love the gospel, because we love one another, and because we love Christ. And I was thinking this week about how to bring this message home, about how to apply this in a very relevant way. And the first thing that my mind went to is how do we alleviate? How do we avoid, a better word is, how do we avoid this anguish in gospel ministry? And then I realized, well, that's kind of a silly question. That doesn't make sense with what we learned today at all. Because as a matter of fact, when you think about what we're learning in this passage from Paul, it seems like anguish is part and parcel of what it means to minister in a broken world. It seems like gospel anguish could even be a litmus test, whether we're living our lives like the Apostle Paul or we're wasting them on something else. Because think about this. Gospel ministry, does it bring anguish? Well, on this side of eternity, you're going to have people that reject the gospel message. And if you love that gospel message, it's going to bring automatic anguish. You're going to have people that do really foolish things And if you love those people, that's going to bring anguish. On this side of eternity, you're going to have people that don't bow their knee to Jesus Christ and his lordship. And if you love Jesus, that's going to bring anguish. So it seems like what we need to learn and what we need to stomach and what we need to process is that on this side of eternity, life is hard. We're going to have to pick up a cross and carry it. We don't have to carry it alone, but we have to carry it. Ministry is hard because there's much opposition and there's much brokenness. I was talking to Pastor Chad after one of these sermons and and we talked about a couple prayer points that maybe we should consider. I want us all to stand together. If you can't stand with me as we start wrapping up this message. My first invitation is for anybody here that has not taken this step of faith yet. I talked a little bit about my step of faith 20 years ago not regretted it ever since. Knowing Jesus more and more every day has been a thrill of a lifetime. The idea that we all stand in front of God in of ourselves condemned, we stand guilty, we stand as sinners. And by believing in the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, by believing that his blood could cover our sins, we can have eternal life. That is incredible news. That is incredible news. You don't have to do anything to earn it. You just receive it. I'm not going to make you come up here and do a little dance or anything like that. Just accept the Lord Jesus in your heart. Believe upon him. This church does something really cool. I'm sure a lot of you guys are familiar with it. They have these cards uh, at your seats. And you could check a box. Now that box obviously doesn't save anybody. But that box lets the good people in this church know that you're thinking about this, that you're wrestling with this, and they could help you wrestle with these issues. So please, do that. For those of us that are in the thick of ministry, and I hope it's everyone here at CVC, that you're pushing one another to Christ, that you're, that you're pushing into the darkness and, and, and making the gospel known, there will be anguish. There will be anguish. Here are a few things that we can pray. I want you to bow your heads. I'm going to say three statements, and these three statements are going to relate to the three points, the three things that we talked about. Maybe these things are going to be helpful to you as you're wrestling with this gospel anguish. Maybe we could pray, gospel ministry is hard, so help me elevate the message even more. 
When you're tempted to devalue the message, when you're tempted to dismiss the message, when anguish comes because of the message, pray gospel ministry is hard, Lord, so help me elevate the message even more. Number two, gospel ministry is hard, so help me be patient with others. Gospel ministry is hard. It brings anguish, so give me the patience to bear with others. Number three, gospel ministry is hard, so help me love my Savior even more. Gospel ministry is hard, so daily, daily remind me of the sweetness of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we, we love you because of what you did and because of who you are. That we, are, that we were, as Paul writes, enemies, that we were enslaved to false gods. And yet by, by, by nothing that we earned, by sheer grace, you come, you suffer a horrific death on the cross, you're raised the third day so that your enemies could be made your friends by believing in that truth. What a wonderful message. Father, as we labor in the gospel ministry and as we see the effects of brokenness in every square inch around us, help us realize that this anguish is not in vain. Help us grab and grasp the idea that one day you will wipe away every tear from every eye, that one day you will remove brokenness finally and completely. We look forward to that day. But until then, give us the strength to labor. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.